The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Henry Dimbleby, who until very recently was the government's food czar, and his co-author and wife, the journalist Jemima Lewis, their new book being Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet Into Shape. Now, I suppose I'll ask you, since we've got what you deplore in the book as a buy one, get one free offer in having both of you here as co-authors, Tell me how the process of putting this book together was. I mean, among other things, you know, working with your partner is a high risk activity. Do you want? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people have um, have asked us how we how we manage this, and also have expressed their own incredulity and said that they would kill their husband or wife if they had to work with them. But actually, I think I think the best working partnerships usually happen where one person is much better at one thing than the other and vice versa and in this case I'm a better writer than him but he's a much better thinker than me and so it worked out rather well there was a clear division of um duties he means he's he's a, he's a good he's not a bad writer actually he's a good writer she described he, my writing at the book launch as serviceable <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly oh, that's, one, that's one for the anniversary party <laughs> <laughs> but he he writes the way he thinks in a great sort of unaerated kind of torrent of thoughts all tumbling over each other very dense and he he because all this knowledge is in his head he doesn't sort of he doesn't pull it out and leave it to air the way it's highly it, calorific you need highly calorific whip it into a meringue sort of i thing. mean calorie calorie dense <laughs> the, the, the thing that I think is really interesting about, for me, about, I mean, it was incredibly enjoyable and it meant we had things to talk about that weren't the children. And mm-hmm. I found that enjoyable. And also she's rather firm, which I enjoy. She's, <laughs> she won't allow anything through that, you know, she won't allow anything through that she hasn't green lighted. But what, what was interesting about it is, I mean, my mate used to edit the Week magazine, you know, which is kind of how do you make things as clear as possible, as short as possible. And... Actually, more people should have editors like this. So the process of having someone say, what do you actually mean? And being forced to write down until a 12-year-old would understand it quite often reveals gaps, weaknesses in the argument. And you end up actually changing it. And it wasn't just this book that that Mima edited. She edited the National Food Strategy, which was a government document, an independent review for government. And so we'd actually been doing it for three years together by the time we tried to write and it. And the school food plan as well. And, and, and a previous government review that I'd done called the school food plan. And so by the time we, I mean, this book is intended to be a kind of much more racy, gripping read, but the, the, the arguments had been, you know, worked out together. And I often look at a government document or academic documents and think, they should employ more people like Mima, actually they would get better thinking. So I don't think you can, in many ways, separate thought and argument from the specific sentences on the page. They, they, they dance together to, to produce something better, I think. The argument you make, which we'll move on to examining 
Well, it's it's covered a huge lot of ground because you're not just talking about the health issues caused by our diets, but about the way in which in fixing those, we also have to look at, you know, the various forms of natural and planetary despoliation that follow from the food system. These are all, among other things, very, very kind of emotive issues. You know, people feel very, very viscerally strongly about them. They're contrary. Did the two of you find yourself in complete lockstep? Or were there areas where you were like, actually, I don't think that this is right, or I, you know, read things differently? I I often pushed back on things, partly just to be devil's advocate, because I, I, I didn't want to let anything through where we hadn't thought about the counter arguments. And actually, all through the book, there's a lot of... Um, I mean, Henry also talked to people like Christopher Snowden, who doesn't really believe in any of the stuff in the book. Yes, no, he wrote, wrote possibly your, your only hostile review. Yes, exactly. But that, actually, but... it was very useful talking to him, wasn't it? Because it was like you were, you were sort of pushing up against the exact opposite of you and testing your own arguments and seeing whether you still believed in them. Yeah, and you're fine. I mean, I actually wrote to Chris after his review and said, I said... I'm disappointed in you in a, in a slightly <laughs> joke way because he did actually misrepresent. He intentionally misrepresented something. Book, and he wrote back to me saying, "I knew this day would come." <laughs> um, but but I think that if you look at the book, like on the kind of the difficult things like meat, like should the government be intervening in the commercial incentives, all the time, all the way through the process, we were quite careful to bring to lay the underlying arguments quite slowly, so to bring as many people as possible as you could to the edge of the conclusion before reaching the conclusion. Because so much of Twitter is just, you know, well, so much of modern argument is slanging matches that I think even if you disagree with the conclusions, you will probably learn something about the system because, because it's not a polemic in that sense. It doesn't start by shouting at you from page one. Yeah. Let's look at the argument a bit. You know, you've divided it helpfully for the purposes of idiots like me who want to interview about it into chunks. And the first one is our bodies. And that's the one that, you know, for many of us is most most close to home. You say, which I think is fairly unexceptionable, there are a lot of us who eat unhealthily and are unhealthy as a result. But your basic argument there is that it's a system. What does it mean to talk about the food system rather than individual choice? So fundamentally, the understanding of system dynamics goes back to a team in MIT at the end of the 50s, early 60s. And what's particularly interesting, and, and they, they observed lots of different systems and noticed that they have similar properties in terms of the way they work, the way they break down, uh, and what's interesting is that that work has actually gone, it's one of the few things that started off as a business, looking at businesses, but it's gone back into biology and into, a, a particularly into modern energy systems in biology. It's rather rare. And you, I spoke to one of the kind of top scientists in this field. So why, this is really weird. Normally things go the other way, but this has come from kind of almost consultants back. And he was like, yeah, it is weird, but it's true. So fundamentally, you have to work out what the feedback loops are in the system. So you know, we talk a lot about things like policy resistance. So, you know, if you put in place one policy, you can't necessarily expect it to work because the the system will try and game it, will try and get around it. And the two feedback loops that were going wrong fundamentally in the food system, one is this interaction between our evolved appetite and the commercial incentives of food companies. 
And the other is the fact that we don't make nature visible in any of many of our activities when we come to measure human success. But on that first one, it's like briefly, you know, the reason we are sick is because we have this appetite that will make us do extraordinary things. We use the example of the Chilean rugby players who crashed in the Andes and ended up eating their families, first their flesh and then their organs and lungs and brains. Uh, and Ansel Keys's experiments in America at the end of the war, where he starved people, conscientious objectors who wanted to be part of the um, of the war effort, and then refed them to see how they would refeed people in 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 Europe who were starving after the war. And and those people said that when they went to the cinema, you know, they didn't care about the love or the train wrecks or the fights. All they cared about was looking at the food on screen. So your appetite will make you do crazy things. And we have a particular appetite for highly calorie-dense food. And food companies, not because they're evil, but because that's where they make money, have invested more and more money into that system. We've eaten more, they've invested more money, and we've become sick. And the central argument is, unless you break that feedback loop on health, we will become sicker and sicker until we become, you know, the NHS with a state attached and poor and miserable and sick. And objection that lots of people will raise, which you kind of look at in your very first page, you say, look, you think you've got free will, but you don't say in quite as many words, but you bloody nearly do. You say, but you haven't. Why do we not have free will? I mean, you know, as you say, we have appetites. We are driven by these hormones that rocket around our body when we're when we're hungry. But, you know, most of us aren't in the position of plane travellers crashed in the Andes. You know, we go to the supermarket and we do have a choice. So we never say you don't have free will. What we say is you are the cog in a machine and you have huge tides that you have to swim against if you want to swim against them. And those tides will depend on your genes. So some people have a genetic, much stronger genetic propensity for this stuff. Obesity is somewhere between 40 and 70% genetically determined. And the second thing is your circumstance. So what kind of where you live, what you see, what you eat. And what we say is you have to realise that and you have to realise that the fact that we were 1% obese is not, as a population, 1% of us were obese in the 50s and 28% are obese now, is not because we had a sudden kind of societal collapse of willpower. It's because the food system changed. And so if as a society, yes, there are things individually that we can do and we go into that in the book, but is that if as a society we want to change our direction, we can't ignore the fact that those feedback loops, that those strong tides exist. We have to try and change the environment. I mean, the, the, the other option, and actually I think this is probably what is more likely to happen, is that rather than fix the food system, we'll fix the other end of the feedback loop, we'll fix our appetites. So these new drugs, Wagovi and Azempic, they're very effective. And in fact, for people who are over, have over 35 BMI and have been miserable and struggled with their weight all their life, I would strongly recommend you go and talk to your GP about them. But I think we are more likely to end up in a world where tens of millions of people are permanently medicated against the food system than fixing the food system because we can't, because we can't summon the political will to do the latter. I don't know. Is that is that a bleak prognostication? If the medicine gets good, well, so you know, the, and, and we can still eat KFC as often as we like, or Leon, <laughs> what would? Well, you, you, know, uh, uh, you that? so so that is that is a good question. I think there are two problems with with going down that route. The first is that you have 
you will, you will get all sorts of... Uh, at the moment, this drug's been prescribed to a very small number of people. And th so the first problem is that, as we know from the COVID vaccination, you will almost certainly get some tail effects that if you give this drug to 15 million people will happen to quite a lot of people. And then you get the risk that the drug will... People will reject it, they'll be frightened of it, etc. And then you won't have people taking it and they'll continue to get sick. The second one, which is kind of more fundamental in my view, is on the environmental side. And we, you know, we go back to the argument of why we're in the, the mess. And we're in the mess because we focused on yield because we thought the population was going to starve. Right thing to do. Uh, and that caused all sorts of other problems. I worry with any plant, if you look at the history of complex systems or how complex systems work, elastoplasting one little bit of it doesn't tend to be a permanent solution, tends to create other unknown problems down the road. And I don't think it is impossible. I think the, the amount of political will required just to create a, a, a better food, you know, we talk about both a better food culture and better processed food, is not, is not so great that it's worth taking that risk. Yeah. Parenthetically, actually, there's something in this that, that came as a bit of a surprise to me. But you say exercise doesn't help you lose weight. Yes. So exercise is probably the most powerful thing you can do for your health, both mental and physical. It is just fantastic for you. But it now looks as though our calorie expenditure is an adaptive system as well. So there are feedback loops that mean that when you exercise more, you spend less energy in other areas. Your body compensates probably, but we don't know entirely, by reducing the amount of energy that you spend on reproduction and on your immune system, which are the other two big drawers on energy. And we know this because of a scientific technique called the doubly labelled water method, which for the first time enabled scientists, normally if you want to measure how much energy you expend, you have to kind of put on a some kind of medieval torture hood and stand on a treadmill, whereas this enables you to measure the expenditures of people over in, in real life. And very recently, it's become cheap enough to do in, in bulk. And what you see is that couch potatoes basically expend the same amount of energy as physically active people. Hunter-gatherers spend the same amount of energy as um, sedentary populations in Chicago. When you take people out of those hunter-gatherer tribes and bring them into uh, Western societies, they also spend the same amount of energy. So it's quite counterintuitive until you think about what systems do and why. And you think that actually everything, almost everything about our body is self-regulated. We regulate our temperature, we regulate our weight, we regulate, you know. And so when you think about it like that, it's not surprising. So yes, and the reason that we're, we, this is worrying is that you tell people to exercise, to lose weight, and they don't lose weight. And then they stop doing the thing that is the single most important thing they could do to make them healthy. So people need to separate diet and exercise and, and try and do both. Yeah. Another thing you touched on, which when you're talking about, you know, highly processed, ultra processed food, which is, again, hints at how little we know. You say, you know, for a long time, we thought food was you know, divided by you know, protein and, and carbohydrate and so forth. But that there's something... You know, ultra-processed food is worse for us for reasons we don't quite understand. I mean, you talk about a double-blind, sort of not double-blind, but a kind of double experiment in which for kind of at least traditional nutritional categorizing, 
you feed people ultra high processed versions of a diet that's equivalent to the unprocessed version of it. And at least as I understand it, by the way in which we have thought about nutritional science up till now, they should be equivalent, shouldn't they? And they weren't. Yes. So this is Kevin Halls, who's an American, originally physicist, actually. A lot of the work in the cutting edge of this stuff is being done by physicists. Interesting. I don't know what that tells you about the science. So he, as you said, he, he got people in a facility for four weeks wearing loose fitting clothes. So they couldn't tell what's happened to wait for four weeks. They ate ultra processed food and for four weeks they ate food cooked from scratch, but from the set with the same macro nutritional balance. And when they were eating the ultra processed food, their hunger hormone ghrelin went up, their satiety hormones that make you feel fill, full GLP-1 and YPP went down and they put on a kilo. And when they were eating the unprocessed food, their hunger hormones went down and their satiety hormones went up and they lost a kilo. Now, we think that a lot of this is to do with, there are some things about the ratios of sugar to fat to, to salt to carbs in the ultra processed foods that were different in ratios that didn't appear in specific foods in the cooked food. And Kevin now thinks that that led to the people eating more calorie density. There wasn't as much water in the food, which wasn't measured for. And that meant that one spoonful gave you more, made you more full. And then this issue about hormones, which might be to do with uh, fiber. But there's a whole other thing, which I think will, which is real wild west. So you will have heard about the microbiome and the fact that you have more genetic diversity in your, more, more of your DNA is, uh, is not, is, is in, the, in your gut than it is actually in, in your body than your own DNA. But there are, I think that over the next five years, as computing power increases and genetic sequencing speeds up and we get to be able to measure these things, the complexity of food will turn out to be something that has effects both on your health and on your satiety and the amount you eat. So there's another physicist called Laszlo Barabasi, Alberto Lazaro Barabasi, and he has measured basically what he calls the dark matter of nutrition. And he points out that while the USDA, which, which is responsible for measuring you know, foods and nutrition, there are a hundred or so chemical compounds that it recognizes in a garlic clove. A garlic clove actually has 2,600 chemical compounds in it. And, you know, that is very likely to be, to have consequences. You might remember about five or 10 years ago, we all thought that there was junk DNA, that actually very little of our own DNA was being used. And then it turns out it's completely false. All of our DNA is being used. It's just epigenetically turned on and off and my guess is that all of those 2600 compounds or most of them are doing something to our body but we just don't know what yet so we understand food less well than we thought we did yes barabasi says with nature he's because he's a system scientist he started looking at the internet and the connections of things and he says we're like a child with a toy we've broken it down broken it up and we we understand every part of the toy better than we ever will but we have no idea how to put it back together again and we understand the whole nature as a whole we're as far from understand understanding it as we ever are because of because it's actually not just the pieces it's how they fit together that's important well look at some of the pieces that we at least slightly understand which are you know tons of sugar for instance is as a rule bad for you we talk about the way that you think that should be tackled in in terms of trying to work with the market to make manufacturers nudge them, if you like, into reformulating. And 
you, I'll just pick you up on one thing about that. You say, look, if we tax sugar at source, if you like, you know, tax the sugar as an ingredient that's bought by manufacturers, you seem very confident that those things won't be passed on to consumers in terms of price rises. And I'm wondering how confident you, you really are about that, because we know that, you know, when crude oil goes up, you know, we feel it at the pump. We know that, you know, when t- cigarettes are taxed, we feel it very strongly. What, why do you think manufacturers won't just soak their customers as they do in other industries? Well, so we did a lot of detailed work on this, and in particular were helped by Professor Rachel Griffiths, an economist who works at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And we looked at a product level, both at what would happen if you didn't, if there was no reformulation, and what would happen if there was reformulation. We we know from the sugary drinks industry levy, by the way, that there was huge amount, which was George Osborne's tax on the amount of sugar in sugary drinks, that there was huge reformulation. It didn't earn him nearly as much as he'd hoped because the drinks companies took all the sugar out. But two things. First of all, even with what was a very large tax on sugar, the impact on an individual product was generally quite small. Uh, You know, a few pence on a a Mars bar, for example, on a chocolate bar. But we thought looking at kind of the effect of tax and, and Rachel and the team looked at all sorts of other impacts and what happens in terms of changes of behavior with tax. Quite a conservative set of assumptions about how much reformulation went on. That would be quite minimal. We thought a lot of sugar would be taken out of the system. I think the politics of it would come. There are one or two products like we're thinking about. If you were going to fight this in the Daily Mail, how would you fight it? And there are one or two things that are hard to reformulate. So, for example, value jam is just sugar and water. There's no fruit in it. So like if you normally, if you have <coughs> jam, the fruit's quite expensive. So you can take out a lot of the sugar and you know make it less sweet, or you could put up the price and you won't notice it. But value jam, I think, you know, if I were to fight the Daily Mail campaign against it, I'm giving away giving this away to the Daily Mail, but I would <laughs> I would say, you know, Nan, Nan can't have her value jam. But on the whole, all of the work we did suggested that it would either be small increases, but that most of it would be reformulated away. Jemima, did you find yourself being the, the backstop for the what's the Daily Mail going to say line on all this? Yes, I, I found myself, uh, especially on complicated economic things like that. Actually, I think that was one of my useful roles was was saying again and again, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Surely this, surely that being sort of being the, the kind of um, supposed common sense voice of scepticism. I, I, I str- struggled a lot and still do with the whole exercise thing, which I think most people will find one of the bits of the book that's most baffling and counterintuitive. And um, with the sugar tax, I mean, when it comes to numbers, I'm completely illiterate anyway. So quite a lot of our time was spent with me kind of writhing in agony, <laughs> trying to understand the economics of these things. And yeah, that, I, I think I was quite useful in that way, just being yeah, kind incredibly of like, useful explain it to me one more time (laughs) (laughs) but i mean with this you know you sort of say part of the problem is that it's a complex system that is an emergent system it's its properties are emergent from generations and generations of economic decisions and behaviors that have been conditioned by those and feed back into them does that not give you a a certain amount of kind of instinctive humility at 
the question of how you do tinker with it because you're obviously such systems are as you say you know not only do they get round interventions but interventions can have cascading and unexpected effects i mean you seem quite confident yeah. in this well, book about well, no, I, de- definitely i mean i think there are things where there are basic things to be done so for example on the on the biodiversity side and the nature side you know we quote path dasgupta who in his economics of biodiversity estimates that we spend 500 billion dollars a year globally subsidizing activities that destroy nature and and it is clear that nature doesn't have a value in our systems and therefore we mine it and we're mining it at a rate faster than it is being replaced so it's a basic argument about what economists call externalities exactly so it is pretty clear that you need to start introducing i don't think there's anyone who would argue that you don't need to start introducing nature into those equations but the question then is how with all these things and it is one of the problems with government is that if you did this in a business what you would do is you would do you would work out what you think is most likely to have an impact uh you would monitor it for as you say cascade effects for unintended consequences for effectiveness and then you'd switch it and you'd change it and you'd that's what businesses do all the time is they work with adaptively with adaptive systems and government finds that very difficult. If you look at the sugary drinks industry level, for example, levy, for example, there are always sorts of ways where it could be made better, you know, where it had site edge effects, which you could improve, other things you could do. And government is not very good at that. It tends to kind of spend a lot of political capital, get something over the hill and then collapse exhausted. And five years later, they might make an iteration. But I don't think you can therefore argue if you don't try to do anything you know that this is going to end badly. So I don't think that's an... I think that's a... As you say, it's an argument to be humble in terms of whether you're right about the intervention, but you need to make the interventions. I mean, we, we say in the book and in the food strategy, we were trying to do two things. One was change the way people understand how the system works, because that in itself is a, is a good. If we all live in a system and don't understand how it works, we're never going to fix it. The second is policy levers, but the policy levers are, are much more, should be much more mutable and flexible and evolve over time. But if we don't understand, if we don't accept that we are stuck in some of these systems traps, we're never going to fix the system. Now, you've mentioned land, and that's obviously the other side of it. How much do you feel, I mean, you seem quite optimistic in the book, that the solutions to, say, the health issues caused by, you know, that we're all fat and sick that the solutions to that problem are going to be, if you like, march in lockstep with the solution to the environmental problems rather than, if you like, uh, you know, reinforcing the problems. Are there not instances or is there not a sense that, certainly at least in the past, fixing our so our food system yeah. has involved, you know, despoiling nature? Do they go together? Do the solutions for both, are they congruent or are they antagonistic? They don't really go together, actually. No, they don't. They don't. So that is, you know, most people will say, oh, well, you have to do both. Actually, you can envisage a, a healthy food system that is environmentally very destructive and you can envisage uh, an environmentally friendly food system that is very unhealthy. So they, they're actually largely, there are some behaviour changes in terms of getting people to eat a bit less meat and a bit more vegetables, where eating more vegetables would help your health and eating less meat would help the environment. But largely, they're separate things. 
I think that's important. And, and I'm much more optimistic about the nature one for two reasons. First of all, with I'm very optimistic about the reduction in cost of solar power, which takes a lot of pressure out of the system if you begin to make energy more cheaply. And then secondly, commercially, it is much easier for companies to make money. The cost of doing things environmentally in the food system in the long term will not be that much higher than the cost of doing them unenvironmentally. And so you can see a transition, whereas on health, I think it's much harder. Yeah. You say unusually that, for example, intensively farmed chicken is much more environmentally friendly, which is going to send most of North London into it's, a complete it's spin. It's not more environmentally friendly, but it is less carbon, a carbon footprint. But there's, it has lots of other horrible environmental impacts. Well, it depends. If so, it's it, this is one of the issues with, as you say, like the, the one size fits all. There are all sorts of trade-offs. So it is, it is lower carbon. And if you manage to keep their manure out of the river, which often isn't the case, it's more environmentally friendly, but it's cruel. You know, if you look at beef, feedlot beef, where you basically pump the animal with growth hormones and antibiotics so it lives on this earth as short a time as possible, releasing methane is lower, has a lower carbon footprint than a longer lived cow. But it also, you know, it comes with other issues. So it is not always, if anyone tells you it's obvious, don't believe them. <laughs> but hopefully we've, we've explained some of those things in an entertaining and... Uh, and straightforward manner you do i was i was fascinated for example by digression into north karelia in finland which seems to be a kind of you know a place many of us will will not have had the pleasure of visiting but which nevertheless seems to offer kind of beacon of hope for your food system T tell us what happened there i'll let Maima talk about north karelia because she's been i i've spoken to pekka paska who was he was this young <laughs> doctor who was largely selected because everyone was dying of heart disease in North Korea and they thought it would take a long time to, to solve. So they chose someone very young to go and do it, who then went on to run the health system in, in North Korea. Do you want to talk about the North Koreans? Well, I mean, I certainly don't know any more than you about it, but I think it's an interesting example of the way we used it in the book was to, sh to, to describe how multiple interventions, the scattergun effect, which is very much disapproved of by Christopher Snowden, among other people, had a massive impact. So this guy, Pekka Paska, was brought in to rescue the North Karelians because they were dying at an incredible rate. It, the men in particular were dying in their 40s and 50s of heart disease because they were smoking and they were eating incredible amounts of fat. Butter with absolutely everything. It sounds delicious. And no vegetables. <laughs> it sounded like a people's paradise. It really did. Anyway, but they were dropping like flies. They were the most unhealthy people in the world, basically, in the, in the, in the developed world. And so Pekka Pasca was brought in to try and change this. And he did it with a huge smorgasbord of different interventions. Not one. It's another good example, of, actually, of, of accepting accepting that things there isn't a simple solution there might be lots and lots of little solutions each of which on their own wouldn't necessarily have much impact but if you put them all together and you get enough political backing you can make a significant change and they now the the, the, the he increased seven years longer they live now yeah. than they did when he went in yeah he did one of my favorite thing that he did was he created a tv show where villages competed against each other to see who could live the healthiest lifestyle. And this was the most watched TV show in Finland. It was like an X Factor, but for village 
for, for a heart disease X Factor. And it was the most watched TV show in, in, by men in Finland. Well, that's a testament to Finnish cultural advancement, isn't it? <laughs> the solutions you hit on, which, you know, including the example of Karelia, you know, inescapably, and it's something that's going to be the thing that sticks most to the craw of the Christopher Sturgeons of this world, and I think probably of many of the listeners to this podcast, is that, you know, there's no way around it. They are very, very statist solutions you're offering. Is there any kind of limit in your mind to the kind of, in principle, to how far you think the state could or should be allowed to intervene in people's health? Uh, well, so I, there, there's a principle that we talk about initially, which is you have to, the state has to act with the culture of the citizens, within, the, within the, what is acceptable citizens. And we point out that, for example, on meat, we do. We think that any state who acted, you know, you, we need to eat less meat. Eighty-five percent of the of the lamb we use to feed us is used to grow meat, and there's just too much pressure on the environment. It's not about methane; it's about land. Uh, but that the state would be uniquely poorly suited to trying to make that happen because we, as a country, take our meat, or a significant proportion of us have a very strong cultural identity with meat eating. And therefore, if a government were to introduce a meat tax or something like that, it would be a disaster politically. Whereas people are fed up with their children being advertised junk food. So I think the first step is the is just what is politically acceptable. I think the second step is and we make this the second thing to say is you need to create you need you need some government intervention, but that is not sufficient. You also need bottom up people caring, changing the system. And so government needs to leave space for that to happen. And and to give an example but back to school food. So one of the things we did in 2013 with the school food plan is that they used to have nutritional food standards. And uh, those food standards required you to measure every single recipe and say what percent of fat, sugar and salt, etc. had in it and there were limits. And it was an absolute disaster because it crushed creativity in schools. And so we recommended, which is now the case, that you have food based standards. So you say, you know, try not to serve you're not allowed to serve chips every day of the week and you know but you work within those and a whole since then a whole new culture of people cooking from scratch in schools has happened because the state was actively suppressing creativity so it's always a balance I think you can't some people think you can just send in the army to solve any problem and you can't you have to create a was it W.E. Denning the, the economist who said a bad system will beat a good person every time. So you need to make sure that the government structurally makes the system just not crushing on creativity. But you also need to encourage care. We talk about love in the book. You know, the fact that every single meal that was ever cooked by one human for another that was delicious and nutritious was done by someone who cared, who loved. And so I think it's a fine balance between the two. Well, the government itself as witness your recent resignation kind of wasn't so keen on playing ball and <laughs> you know can I ask what the precipitating event of that was was there some particular moment because they've been dragging their heels for quite a long time I mean a publication of your book obviously makes a nice peg for it but what was it that caused you to finally up sticks and say I can't well it, it, funnily enough I mean it's not as with all these things it's uh always a fuck up not a conspiracy so um <laughs> basically what happened is i said I, I want to talk more particularly about health i need to talk more i'm writing this book and then one of the civil uh, civil servants who i admire enormously in defra said to me 
Henry, um, don't you think it would be easier to to talk more openly if you weren't still at Deathworld? <laughs> <laughs> Humphrey approach it. <laughs> and I said, I, I realised immediately that was quite right. It would have been incredibly awkward for them if I had been. So I put in my resignation, and then it turned out that I had a notice period, so I had to get permission from the Secretary of State to leave. <laughs> and then I only got permission rather handily from the secretary to leave about a week before the book was published <laughs> so so i left because i wanted to talk loudly but the coincidence of resignation and um and the book being published was exactly that coincidence does talking loudly from outside government do you think that will help to apply apply the pressure you need i mean did you feel like no, this isn't about policy this is about the, so this isn't about getting specific policies in line requires two things. So it requires that people understand the system, so they understand how it works, and then you get little moments when policies happen, which is quite tactical. So the book is about really establishing that this thing, the junk food cycle, exists, establishing the way we need to make the transition on nature, so that going up to the election, hopefully, both parties will maybe slightly change the way they think about it, and after and after. The book is about changing the way people think about the system as we say in the book particularly those people who are sick but every almost everyone in society still thinks that if you're sick as a result of food it's because you're weak and you have bad willpower and it's your own fault and that if we continue if that continues to be the the narrative we are going to end up with as i said an nhs with a state attached low productivity low growth and a lot of very miserable people one of the reasons for writing the book, all the time when we were writing the book, we were thinking we want to cover very complicated ideas in a subtle, nuanced way, but we want to do it so that an intelligent 12-year-old can understand it. And one of the reasons for that is so that you can get these ideas to the widest possible number of people, not just policy wonks, who normally are the ones who are interested in this and who, who in fact, generally kind of know this already. It's to get it out to most people who don't know this already, including, I would hope, quite young people. Yes, you've got quite a nice line towards the end where you say something like, you know, whoever's reading this, whoever's Prime Minister at the moment, you know, at the time of publication, um, you know, obviously never being a sure bet. You know, if you want to know what to do, there's an appendix at the back for you. Um, and speaking of Prime Ministers, you're, you're generally very, very kind of... Um, you know, not ad hominem, and you're sort of Delphic about, you know, you're not naming names and shaming people. But you do at one point have this run-in with Liz Truss over the Aussie deal. Um, yes. Tell us about that story. She didn't take criticism very well, did she? No. I mean, it's interesting now you look back on it, is that all, all of those stories from the inside and you read the the book that James Heap, I think it was, and Harry Cole wrote about her. James Heal. Yeah. Heal, sorry. But, uh, um, Colleague on the Spectator. Yeah. About, uh, about her. was it, it was a microcosm, that thing of not wanting to hear another point of view. So I was arguing that if you did these trade deals, you, you couldn't open up the market to Australian farmers who farmed at environmental or animal welfare levels that were significantly below what we held farmers to in the UK. And... I spoke to her before the publication of part one a few times uh, in the garden behind us, walking around. She called me on two Saturdays in a row to try and persuade me of her case. And then I think the the straw was uh, I was asked to do it, to debate her at party conference. That must have been party conference 2020, 
2021. And I did that. And then I was invited to a meeting to discuss the comprehensive progressive trans-Pacific trade partnership. And I was going to go and then uh, and then the, the meeting disappeared from my diary. This was meant to be a kind of discussion of experts across government about this. It was when she was still trade secretary. And I asked why this had happened. And I was told that she'd asked that I didn't turn up to any of these meetings. In well, future. I think to be fair to Liz Truss, which obviously one is reluctant to be, but um, <laughs> I think she, <laughs> I think the tipping point was when you sent her a picture of a mule's lamb. Wasn't oh, it? yes, that, that, that was, that really was, that, that, that's it. true. <laughs> <laughs> a picture of a what? Well, so so there was an article in the Telegraph saying uh, a comment piece saying that Australian trade deals were Australian our standard welfare standards were the same as ours. And I rang the author of this, or I emailed the author of this, and I said, "Who told you that? Who told you that they were the same as ours?" And he said, "Well, the Department for International Trade told me." And I said, "Well, they're just not. This is not true." And then I. I was then, I'd been trying to get hold of a picture of a mule's lamb. A, a mule's lamb is a technique they use in Australia where they cut off the buttocks of merino lambs uh, and then they scar over and it means that flies don't settle in the buttocks and they don't get fly strike, but it's incredibly cruel and they mostly don't use anaesthetic. And, and the pictures are absolutely And the pictures are horrific. Terrible. And I've been trying to get hold of pictures <laughs> from Australia and I was sitting somewhere in my car very early in the morning and the pictures pinged in from RSPCA in Australia. And I rather ill-advisedly forwarded that immediately to Liz Truss saying, this is something like, this is the trade stand, this is the welfare stand in Australia. I think that was when she lost her patience <laughs> with me, maybe. Oh. <laughs> but actually, you know, that was actually, I was also, uh, I think the same civil servant who said, um, who, who said it might be better to talk from the outside said to me, that was an interesting decision, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Another Sir Humphrey moment. Well, now you're very much, you know, you're no longer on the inside of the tent pissing out, but there's somewhere in between. How confident are you? I mean, which parts of your, because you've got a sort of, not quite a theory of everything, but an overview of like, this is what we need to do in this area, this is what we need to do in this area, this is what we need to do in this area, and, and, you know, the countryside will be transformed and we'll all be thin and healthy and happy and, and so forth. I mean, given what you know of the resistance in government, you know, you couldn't, half your food policy things weren't implemented until suddenly Marcus Rashford was on the front pages all these given you know how it works you really inside out which parts of it do you actually feel realistically we've got a chance of getting through so unlike many farmers at the moment who are worried and nervous I'm actually quite optimistic about the farming transition and the environmental transition because the need to do it is so deeply felt across all sides of politics. Everyone thought, for example, that when Therese Coffey came into DEFRA, she would be banging a Liz Truss, you know, pro-growth. And she's completely obsessed by environment and biodiversity and meeting the targets there. So I think that while there may be missteps along the way, it's a complex system, they might get some of the payments slightly wrong. I'm very optimistic. This is subsidising farmers to use their land in a, in a less intensive way. That's basically. part of pay, paying them, paying them to do, not subsidising, paying them to do, to, to rest, rather than paying them to destroy their land, paying them to restore the environment and farm in ways that protect the soil and animal welfare, and, but also regulating, getting the trade deals right. So I'm optimistic on that. On the health side, because that is an area where there is real lobbying across government departments. So Department for Culture, Media and Sport with ITV in its ear will say, oh, well, if we restrict advertising, we're going to lose all children's programming. 
DEFRA will fight against it and poor DHSC, Department of Health and Social Care, doesn't stand a chance. And, it, uh, and you need a strong number 10 for that. That is the kind of example where deep systemic problem, multiple factions lobbying government, you need a number 10 to drive it through. And, um, you know, I was there, I had five secretaries of state and four prime ministers while I was there. And just as I left, actually, there's a bit more grip coming back. But, uh, you know, I th- I, I'm very, I, I think we'll go down the drug route. I think we'll go down the Wagovi route on that rather than actually improving our food system. If that's, well, I don't, 50% chance. Oh, well, at least you tried. Henry Dibble, and Jemima Lewis, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you.